All right, most of you know this, but we're on a verse-by-verse, passage-by-passage study through the book of Mark, and we're getting closer and closer to the end. We land today in Mark chapter 14, verse 1 through 11, and we're going to head in that direction this morning, so let's pray before we move in, okay? Let's pray. Pray with me. God, we need your help all over this, this gospel. You have shown us how amazing you are over and over again. God, do it again. Help us to see your glory. Challenge our souls. Teach us what you want us to do, what you want us to be. God, these, you, you lay up these examples for us in your word, God. Help us to walk in the example you've called us to walk in. Give us help, God, as we, as we look at your word now. God, I pray those are the affections and the love and the desire and the hunger that, that my brother just spoke about, God. I pray that you would work that in us, God, and do it through your word. As we get our eyes, we gaze on your glorious, breathed out by you word, God. I pray that you would move in our hearts. Help us, Lord, please. God, I need your help. God, let your word go forward with accuracy and power, God, through a weak vessel. Help me, Lord. And God, I lift up every hearer of your word here. Every, every person under the sitting under the preaching of your scriptures, God, I just pray that you'd help them, Lord. Help them to hear, to be careful how they hear. And help them to hear, God, in a way that brings you glory and edifies their soul. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so what this passage is going to do, just kind of let you know what's going to happen ahead of time. This passage is going to put two examples in front of us. So Mark, the writer of this gospel, is is placing two examples in front of us today. And the Holy Spirit, who moved Mark to write, is putting two examples right in front of our faces today to look at. Two examples. We're going to see a woman with spiritual affections, burning with love for Christ. That's one example. In her example, we're going to see that Christ Jesus is glorious. He's majestic. He's amazing. He's beyond description. And then her affections are going to meet with that. Her affections for Him, her love for Him is going to make sense in light of who Christ is is and we're going to see that when that happens when the glory and worth of Jesus and it matches and it meets and it lines up with his disciples affections for Jesus that that pleases him and he says that's beautiful it's beautiful and then we're going to see an example of a man namely Judas who cannot see the glory and the beauty and the majesty and the, the majestic, just, he can't see this about Christ. His eyes are not open to see it. Therefore, he has no affection. He has no love for Christ. He lacks in that way. We're going to see a man, Judas, the second example, that walked with Jesus day after day. Very familiar with Jesus. He carried the name of a disciple and yet he couldn't see Jesus' glory. He couldn't behold His glory. And we'll see a man that has more affections, more love for money than he does for Christ. 
We have two examples put in front of us. Her example is going to meet. It's going to, how beautiful, how beautiful when the worth of Christ and our affections for His worth match up. It's going to be beautiful and Jesus is going to say that. And how destructive when He's worthy of all our praise and our affections don't meet that. And that's going to be called suicidal in this passage that we're in. Two examples. She's going to pour out I'll let you know what's about to happen. She's going to pour out this very costly fragrant oil, just pour it out on Jesus. She's just going to pour it all out on Him with all of her affections, and He's going to betray Jesus for money. Two examples put in front of us. She's willing to pour out on Jesus the most expensive thing that she has because she valued Jesus way more than money. And he's going to betray Jesus for a little bit of money because he values money way more than he values Jesus. Two examples. She values Jesus Christ in her heart, in her words, in her actions. She values him above all else. But Judas, the man, the second example, just values him in word. But in heart, he does not value Christ. He values money. She can see His beauty. And she pours out her whole life on Him. He cannot see the beauty of Christ. The glory of Christ. He can't see it. So He doesn't give those affections. In light of the infinite wisdom of God, her life makes sense. Give your whole life to the source of all joy. In light of the wisdom of this world, His life makes sense. Give your life to the source of all pleasure and joy, money. And the infinite wisdom of God that points to Christ is actually going to deliver. Whereas the wisdom of this world that points to money will not deliver what it promises. We've got two examples that are going to be put right up in front of us. The example of this lady, we'll find out her name is Mary. And the example of this man named Judas. And every person in this room, and I want you to think about this before we even head in. Every single person in this room, every single one of us, fits into one of these camps. We're either with her or we're with him. With Mary or we're with Joseph. We fit into one of these camps. And I encourage you to keep that in mind as we read this passage and as we walk through it and explain it. Read with me in verse 1. After two days, it was the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And what that means is in just a couple days is coming the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It's coming up in a couple days. And the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might take him by trickery and put him to death. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar of the people. That's the plot to kill Jesus. They're plotting to kill him. Two days out from the Passover, two days out from him dying, and they're plotting to kill him. And then we get this story, starting in verse 3. And being in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, 
As he sat at the table, a woman came having an alabaster flask of very costly oil of spikenard. Then she broke the flask and poured it on his head. But there were some who were indignant among themselves and said, why was this fragrant oil wasted? For it might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they criticized her sharply. But Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always, and whenever you wish, you may do them good. But me, you do not have always. She has done what she could. She has come beforehand to anoint my body for burial. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. That's the story of the woman. And then we see how those chief priests and scribes are plotting to kill Jesus. How are their desires going to be answered? They're thinking, how can we do it secretly? And look at verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. So he sought how he might, might conveniently betray him. Now the way this section is laid out, okay, I want you to see the way it's laid out. In the first, it's, it's kind of like three sections. In the first two verses, we have the plot to kill Jesus. The, the religious leaders are searching for a way to murder him. And then right in the middle, verses 3 through 9, we get the story of this woman who I just spoke about, who has affections ablaze for Jesus. And then in the the final two verses, verse 10 and 11, we see the story of the man, namely Judas, who betrays Jesus to these men that are plotting to kill him. So the story of this woman, like I said, this is Mary. If you read other accounts, John chapter 12 is a parallel passage. Her name is Mary. She's the sister of Lazarus, Lazarus, the sister of Martha. This is Mary that we're talking about. And this story of this woman is sandwiched in between the plot to kill Jesus. Did you see it? And this is a very purposeful thing. Mark and the Holy Spirit They're doing this on purpose that they place this story right in between like a sandwich in between the plot to kill Jesus coming from the religious leaders and the plot to kill Jesus coming from Judas. And that story sits right in between it. In fact, this is people over time have given this a name. It's called a Markin sandwich because it's in Mark and he does this over and over and over again where you see these sandwiches where something's right in the middle and you got this story that surrounds it and it's being done with a purpose, okay? Just to give you a couple quick examples just to jog your memory. Mark chapter 5, you remember you got the healing of the woman with the flow of blood for 12 years. You remember that story? And it's sandwiched in by the story of Jairus' daughter being healed by Jesus. Okay, that's Mark chapter 5. Another example, Mark chapter 11. This one was more recently. We saw this one pretty recently. Jesus goes into the temple in Mark chapter 11. He clears it out. He pronounces judgment on that temple. And the sandwich that's around that is the story of the fig tree. 
Jesus curses the fig tree. And after the story of the cursing of the temple, the fig tree is cursed. And that's meant to teach us something. And this happens over and over and over again throughout Mark to where they even give it a name. And right here we see it in verses 1 through 11. We see the story of this woman and it's sandwiched in by this plot to kill Jesus. And this is teaching us something. Okay? This is a purposeful placement of the story of Mary's devotion. Placed there by Mark. Placed there by the Spirit of God. And the question is, what is the purpose? What's the purpose then? Why is it there? Why is it sitting in that place? And this is the purpose. It's to give us an example. <clears throat> Her, Mary's devotion to Jesus is meant to give us <clears throat> an example of the proper response to Christ. Of true discipleship. This is how you respond to the crucified Savior. Your eyes are looking forward to the one who's about to die. And here's this story. And this is the example. And also, more specifically, is to give us a contrast between this woman and Judas. This woman who valued Jesus more than all her possessions and all money in contrast with Judas who valued 30 pieces of silver more than Christ. It's to give us a contrast and to lift up an example for us to what true discipleship is. Now let me explain this from just a little bit. If you're not with me, okay, you got this sandwich here. Let me explain it from a slightly different angle, okay? When we get into Mark 14, where we're at right now, what we just read, we're entering into a new section of Mark's gospel. This is a new section of his gospel. Everything from here on out is streamlined, focused on the crucifixion of Jesus. I mean, it's focused in, okay? I want you to think about this. You remember there's 16 chapters in Mark, right? And the last six chapters... That over a third of the book is devoted to that last week of his life, including his crucifixion, his life on earth before crucifixion. And it's all devoted to that week right there, the last six chapters, the last third of this book, because the death of Christ on a cross is so important. And it zones in on that week of his life. That should tell you something, okay? Now, beginning in chapter 14, we get an even more detailed zoning in, not just on the last week, but the last few hours. Beginning in chapter 14, going to the end of the book, the last few hours of his life until his crucifixion and he raises from the dead. We're getting a lot, we're zoned in here, okay? I want you to think about it. Verses 1 and 2 says, In two days, in two days is coming the Passover. And that's when Christ is going to be crucified. In chapter 10 and 11, we see. The desires of these people to kill him get uh, fulfilled in Judas betraying him. Okay, we've got the betrayal of Jesus. By the time you get to verse 12, you're at the day of his death. You're there. You're there. And then you get the Last Supper. And then you get his last prayers before he goes to the cross. And then you get his arrest. You get his trial. You get him being crucified for our sins. And this is zoning in all this detail around these last hours of Jesus' life. And right in the middle of this, this part of Mark's gospel, streamlined at the crucifixion, the, the, the cross of Jesus, right in the midst of that, we get this story of this woman. This awesome story of this woman that lays it all down and pours it all out for Christ as an example 
for us. This is meant to help us see the example of true discipleship. What is life to look like in light of the cross? When I survey the wondrous cross, what's, what is my life in the shadow of the cross? How should my life look? And this woman's example is given up as our example to imitate. One more thought to add another layer to that. Let me add one more layer to it, okay? One more layer to the reason for this example plugged in right here. The story of Mary's devotion to Jesus and her pouring it all out for Him, radical devotion to Him, it's plugged into this place in the Markin sandwich, right? It's plugged into this place and it's not even in chronological order. Okay? If you read John chapter 12, verse 1, it says this actually happened, that story happened six days before the Passover. Six days before the Passover. So try to see this. You're reading the Gospel of Mark, and Mark is trying to get you to see something, and he takes your eyes and he moves them forward. In two days is coming the Passover. In fact, the same account, the parallel account in Matthew 26, Jesus actually speaks to his disciples. And he says, it's coming in two days is the Passover and the Son of Man will be crucified. He tells them that in Matthew 26 too. So he gets some mark, gets their eyes looking forward. Two days, it's coming. The, the Passover's coming. The, the real Passover lamb is going to be slain. It's coming in two days. And then Paul's in the narrative. Let me tell you something that happened four days ago. And he takes this story and he plugs it in right there. And the question's why. This is the example. Her example, Mary. The example of true discipleship. This is the life that we live in light of the cross. This is life in the shadow of the cross. This is it. This is the example. And that's why it's placed there. So, I'm going to make a big statement. I believe this story sandwiched in the plot to kill Jesus is one of the most important examples in all of the Bible for us to look at and imitate and reflect on and apply to our lives. If not the most important. It's a big statement, right? Now I'm not saying that just to get you to listen to me. I mean that, okay? And so for clarity's sake, let me answer the question. Why? Do I believe that this example is so massively important? Why do I think that? And there are a few reasons, but I just want to give you two reasons that are right there in the text that we're looking at. Number one, I've pretty much already explained to you the placement of the story tells me this is a massive importance. This is a really important example for us to look at. The placement of the story is purposefully put there by Mark, by the Holy Spirit, not even in chronological order, right in the the narrative of Christ being crucified. Here's the story of this woman. It's as if the Holy Spirit reached back a few days and yanked this story in and put it right up next to the cross so that every time you see Christ crucified, you see an example of this woman. And this is how you respond to Christ crucified. He pulls it right in. That's reason number one. Reason number two. Jesus says about her example in Mark 14, 9. Right there in verse 9. He says, Assuredly I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. 
Her actions stand as a memorial. As a memorial to look at. Jesus is making sure that everywhere the glorious gospel goes and people are saved, everywhere in all the earth, that her example is being lifted up as a memorial. And at a memorial, what do you do? You reflect on it. You look on it. You remember and you apply something to your own life. And He lifts it up as a memorial. And we know that the Lord is doing that because the gospel has come here. And we're talking about it right now. So, I conclude, I conclude then, that this is one of the most important examples in all of the Bible for us to look at, reflect on, apply. Therefore, listen up as we walk through this example. Listen up to what God has to say. Ask the Holy Spirit, speak to me today. Spirit of God, speak to me. Help me to see. Open my eyes. Apply this to my life. We're going to start in the first verse with Judas' example. So Judas' example. Kind of going to do the the bread of the sandwich, so to speak. Okay? Verse 1 and 2, verse 10 through 12, 10 through 11. The bread of the sandwich here, okay? Judas' example. Verse 1. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. He's saying the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread is coming in two days. Two days is coming. The Feast of Unleavened Bread was this week-long celebration. It was kicked off by the Passover where they killed the Passover lambs. This was the feast that God told them to keep back in Exodus chapter 12. You remember that? You remember the Passover in Exodus 12? Death is coming to every single door. He's going to pass. God's going to pass by and death is coming to every household. Oh no, God, what do we do? Because we know we deserve this death and you're coming. What do we do? I want you to take a lamb. It's called the Passover lamb. And I want you to slaughter it as a substitute. Just slaughter it and take its blood and put it over your door. And when I pass by and I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague will not be on you to destroy you. I will pass over you. And this is about to go down. It's about to go down. Think of the symbolism there. And you've got the Passover lambs are about to be slaughtered all over Jerusalem. And then the Passover lamb, the Passover lamb is going to be slaughtered in Jerusalem. The one that all the other Passover lambs point to is going to be slaughtered in two days. It's coming. It's coming. As I said earlier, let me read the exact verse to you. Matthew 26, 2, the parallel count. Jesus literally says it to His disciples, okay? Here's what He says. You know that after two days is the Passover and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. The Passover and the Passover Lamb is going to be crucified. Alright, that's where we're headed. 14 verse 1, look at the second half of 14 1. Second half of verse 1. And the chief priests and scribes sought how they might take him by trickery and put him to death. The the religious leaders are fed up with Jesus. And they want to kill him. He's already messed with their money. He went into the temple, cleaned house, knocked out the, the money changers. He's messing with their money and they want to destroy him. He's already messed with their pride. 
He left them speechless. Every argument they brought up to Jesus, He just left them speechless. And He exposed their wickedness and He left them ashamed. He's messed with their money. He's messed with their pride. And they want to kill Him. They want Him dead. And they want to kill Him secretly. They want to kill Him stealthily. Verse 1 and 2, it says, They sought how they might take Him by trickery. They want to take Him by trickery. I read this, to, this passage to my children last night. And my son said, you can't trick Jesus. I said, amen. That's right, you can't trick Jesus. But they want to take Him by trickery. Why? Verse 2, But they said, not during the feast. Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar of the people. So why do they want to kill Him secretly? Because they're afraid of the crowds and they don't want to be unpopular with the crowds. They're scared of the crowds. That's why they want to do this secretly. So they say, not during the feast. The Passover kicks off the feast. Don't do it then. Don't do it during that week. It's starting in two days. Why don't they want to do it then? There are multitudes of Jews piled into Jerusalem right now. He says, don't do it right now. They love being popular in the eyes of the people. And so don't kill them then. Let's do it secretly. Secretly. Now let me give you a side note on this, okay? This is kind of a side note to where we're going. Side note. At the same time, the religious leaders are saying, we need to kill him, but don't do it during the feast. At the same time, which by the way, the feast starts in two days. At the exact same time, Jesus, according to Matthew 26, 2, is saying, in two days, I'm dying. They're saying, don't do it during the feast. And Jesus is saying, in two days, it's going down. I'm dying. At the Passover, they're saying, don't do it during the feast. Jesus says, at the very pinnacle of the feast, when they're killing the Passover lambs, that's when I'm dying. It's coming in two days. The plans of the religious leaders are being overruled by sovereign Lord Jesus. He is not having His life taken from Him. He is laying down His own life. Nobody takes it from Him. He lays it down as He chooses. And this is what He's doing. This is a great reminder to us that even the event of Jesus' death on the cross was not a surprise to Him. It is the reason He came to the earth. This is a testimony that the, 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 the death of Jesus was ordained since before time began. Before the foundation, Peter preached about this. Acts chapter 2, verse 23. He said, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified. He preached about it. This is the plan that Christ Jesus would die from before time began. This has always been the plan. We even see it in the details. Judas is going to be the one to betray him. And that was actually prophesied before it ever even happened. Psalm 41 verse 9. Even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Even in the details you see it. This has always been the sovereign plan of God. These these people are saying, don't do it during the feast. But they're being overruled by sovereign Lord Jesus that's, that's been planning this as before time actually began. This is the sovereign hand of God. This means something. You know what this means? This means that the murderous religious leaders who are beating their chest because they crucified the Savior. If you're really the Christ, come down off that cross. 
Come on off the cross and we'll believe in you. And they're just pitiful pawns in the hands of our sovereign Savior. Or even Judas, who thinks he's going to get away with his pockets lined with money, and yet he's just a pitiful pawn in the hand of our sovereign Savior. And according to the same parallel account in Luke 22, before Judas does his deed that we read about in verse 10 and 11, it says Satan entered him. Satan entered him. So even Satan himself is just like a little errand boy up next to our sovereign Savior. This is an awesome testimony of that. Okay. So you got the religious leaders. Their desire to kill Jesus secretly. What does this have to do with Judas? Because Judas is about to partner with these men. What does this have to do with Judas' example? He's about to partner with these men. Look at verse 10. We're skipping over our glorious example of how to respond to the cross in verse 3-9. through Going straight to verse 10. The narrative just flows because her story is just kind of injected in there. So the narrative just flows. Look at verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, one of the twelve, he was one of the twelve, he walked with Jesus for three years. He really knew Jesus. He was named a disciple. Think about that. Can you apply that to yourself? He really knew Christ. He was very, very familiar with Christ, yet he could not see His glory. He was so familiar with the Son of God. In the beginning was the Word. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word is God and the Word became flesh. And He's sitting right in front of Judas and He can't see His glory. He can't see how beautiful He is. He can't see how awesome He is. So He's willing to give Him up for 30 pieces of silver. Silly. In one sense, He knew much of Jesus. He knew much of Jesus. He walked with Him. Disciple. He's one of the twelve is what it just said. In one sense, He knew much of Jesus. But in a more important sense, He knew nothing of the Savior. Nothing. In one sense, He saw the real Jesus more clearly than anybody here. But in another more vital sense, He was blind and He could not see the glory of Christ. He couldn't see Him. Mary saw Him, but He couldn't see Him. The Savior, the real Passover Lamb, is sitting at the table. He's at the table. Mary sees Him. The disciples see Him. There He is, sitting at the table. The One who's going to take all the sins of the world onto Himself. And like a slaughtered lamb, He's going to be crucified. He's going to take the wrath of God in our place. He's right there. And He's blind. He looks over at 30 pieces of silver and He goes, that's what I want. I want that. Not that, I want that. Not the Word of God made flesh, I want that. Not the Son of God who loved, so loved the world. So loved the world that He came and He died and laid down His life. Rose from the dead. Just raised up Lazarus from the dead just a few days ago. The resurrection power, He's got it right there. I'd rather have 30 pieces of silver. He can't see. He's blind to it. Instead of seeing the glory and beauty and majesty of Christ Jesus, he was wrapped up in the glory and beauty of money. Instead of seeing the glory of Jesus, he was wrapped up in the glory of money. Let me show you that. 
You know, in verse... Let me show you that in two places in this passage. Okay, Let me show you that. That he's wrapped up in the glory of money. Verse 4 and 5, we see a group of people and they're responding to Mary's radical devotion and how are they going to respond? With anger? And they're going to sharply criticize her? And we know from the account in John chapter 12 that Judas actually led out that uprising against her. Judas led that out. You got the disciples there? They're all involved. They're all angry. They're, they all have, have uh, criticized this woman's deed that Jesus is going to call beautiful. And we know from John chapter 12 that Judas is the one that led that out. John 12 verse 4 says this. One of the disciples... Judas Iscariot said, why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Is this, what's this act that she's doing? She just poured it all out on Jesus. That could have been sold for 300 denarii, given to the poor. What's she doing? And she rebukes her. He rebukes her. He led out this uprising against her. And then in the next verse in John 12, I believe it's verse 5, we get his real heart. What's Judas's heart? Does he care about the poor? Does he really care about the poor? Listen. This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief. And he, he had the money box. And he used to take what was put in it. He's a thief. It's money that he wanted. He wanted money. He wanted, he wanted the things of the world. That's what he really loved. That's what Judas really wanted and what he really loved. As long as Jesus keeps me healthy and wealthy and successful, I'll follow Jesus. But as soon as Jesus tells me to loosen my grip on the things of this world, I'll betray Him. This is Judas. The cry of Judas is, what's in it for me? The cry of Judas is, what do I get out of this? What do I get out of this situation where I follow Him? What do I get? What's in it for me? That's the cry of Judas. And it's exactly, exactly the opposite of Mary. Mary, who gladly lays it all down. Mary, who says, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my silver and my gold. Not a mite shall I withhold. Take my love, my Lord. I pour, I pour at thy feet. It's treasure store. Take myself and I will ever, I will be ever only all for thee. And this is the cry of her heart. And Judas is exactly the opposite of her. We see Judas wrapped up in the love of money. Okay, that's one place in this section. Let me show you the second place. Verse 10 through 11. I'm going to read verse 10 through 11 again. And I want you to notice that it says they promised him money. They promised him money. Look at it. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest to betray him to them. And when they heard it, oh, they wanted to kill Jesus. So when they heard it, they were glad. They were glad. And they promised to give him money. So he sought how he might conveniently betray him. We know from the account in Matthew 26, verse 14 and 15, that Judas actually asked for money. This is not a coincidence. He asked for the money. Listen to the verse. Then one of the twelve called Judas Iscariot went to the chief priest and said, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? And they counted out to him 30 
pieces of silver. Judas was consumed with the love of money and he was not consumed with the love for Jesus. So here we got our, we got our contrast here, okay? Given to us by the Holy Spirit. For us to look at and see, here's the contrast. We've got Mary consumed with glory, the glory of Jesus, the beauty of Jesus. She's consumed. And we'll dig more into that in just a minute, okay? Her affections are matching the worth of Jesus. And Jesus says, that's beautiful. It's beautiful. And we've got Judas. So we've got Mary, and we've got the contrast. Judas. We've got Judas consumed with the glory of money. His affections do not match the worth of Jesus. And this is suicidal. Suicide. In just a few days, this man will kill himself. To take the affections and he's worth all this glory and praise if all my affections to not be there but to be on something else like money is a path to suicide. It's suicidal. It's a recipe for disaster. Jesus is absolutely glorious, beautiful, majestic, and money is just money. It's just money. And he's glorious and money is just Money, yet Jesus has more heartfelt love and desire for money than He does for the Son of God. And it leads to a horrific end. Now, I feel compelled at this moment, as most of you probably would, to give some strong warnings about the love of money. I want to give to you some strong warnings about the love of money. Now, when I say money, or when I say the love of money... Many people's thinking is too narrow about the love of money. It's too narrow. Okay? I'm not talking about loving little green paper bills and loving shiny silver things in your pocket. It's not necessarily what I'm talking about. Okay? Covetousness. Covetousness is another way to speak about the love of money. You see that in Hebrews 13.5. Take heed and beware of covetousness. The ESV says, says, keep your life free from the love of money. Covetousness. It says, I want, I want, I want, I want stuff in the things of this world and money will get me that. I want security in this life, which will come through money. I want security in this life. Comfort in this life. I want pleasure in this life. And it comes through money, more money, more stuff. And I get pleasure in this life. I want to be seen as great in this life. I want to be seen as great. And if I have more money, more than the next guy, more stuff, more things, more possessions, more goods, then I'll have it. The love of money is synonymous with the love of the world. The love of money. I want, I want, I want. Covetousness. I want, I want, I want the things of this world. Okay? The love of Money, synonymous with the love of this world. Listen to 1 John 2.15. Do not love the world. Don't love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, and listen to the definition of all that is in the world. Listen. All that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. Think about that definition. All that is in the world. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, 
the pride of life, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the lust, I want it, I want it, I want, I want, I want, my eyes see it, the lust of the eyes, my eyes see it and I want it. The lust of the flesh, I feel it and I want it. I want what I feel. I want what I see. I look around me and I want it. And the pride of life, the pride of life, it's like the pride of, of possession, the pride of goods. The same word life there is used in 1 John 3.17 as those who have this world's goods. Goods, the pride of these goods, these possessions. So there's, I want, the, the lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, I want, I want, I want, covetousness, the, the, the uh, love of money, and then the pride of life is, I have, I have, I have the pride of what I possess, I have it, and it's all the things of this world, the love of money, the love of the world, so, so th- this is what I want you to see, those who have a love for the world, have a life full of, I want, I want, I want, I have, I have, I have, and Jesus is nowhere to be found in the picture. I want this, 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 and this, and I have this, 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 and this, and Christ is not there. It's not I want Jesus, and I have Jesus. So I want the things of the world. This is the sort of life I'm warning against when I say beware of the love of money. I'm looking at Judas' life as an example, saying to everybody here, beware of the love of money. Hear me say that. Beware of the love of this world. You say, I don't have that. Don't let it sneak up on you, please. Judas' life, excuse me, Mary's life. Think about this. Mary's life was, that's the good example, Mary's life. Her life was, I won't, I won't, I won't, and I have, I have, I have, except Jesus was the object of it all. I want, I want, I want Jesus more than everything else. I have, I have, to have Jesus is greater than everything else. I want Him. I'll lay it all down, very costly perfume. I'll lay it all down, pour it all out for Him. Judas's life was I want, I want, I want, and Jesus was not his want, and that's suicidal. It's very destructive. And you fall into one of these categories. You fall into one. Which one is it? Which category do you fall into? Do you feel the weight of how dangerous money is? And yes, I said money. I didn't say the love of money. I said money's dangerous. You have to handle it. You have to look at it. You have to make it. You have to use it. And in the moment your heart turns in love for it, destroy it. It's dangerous. The moment you set your affections on it, destroy. The love of money is suicidal. Paul said it. Listen to this. Listen to 1 Timothy 6. Take my, please, take my warning. Take my warning. Take Paul's warning. Listen to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 7. We brought nothing into the world. It's certain we could carry nothing out of the world. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich, it doesn't even say you're rich, I just want it. Those who desire to be rich fall into a temptation and a snare 
and into many foolish and harmful lusts and listen to the suicidal nature of the desire to be rich, the desire for stuff, the love of the world. Listen to it. Which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil for which some having strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. I want to be rich. I want money. Pierced. Stabbed. That's what that just said. Paul said it. Paul said it's suicidal. And Judas lived it out. He loved money. His affections were there. In word, he was all good. I love Christ. He's just like us. Most of us here were raised with that little preschool creed, right? God first. Family second. Education third, maybe. Whatever comes third. But everybody grew up with that little creed. That's right, God first. It's easy in word. It's easy in word. But it's deceptive. In his heart, he was there in word, yet Judas's heart, he loved money, he loved stuff, he loved the world. His affections were for the things of the world and not for Christ. Do you love money? Do you love money? Do you love the world? Are your affections caught up? If I really got a glance into your affections, would your affections be zeroed in on Christ Jesus, the Savior, the real living Savior who died for your sins, who rose from the grave, who gives life to those who come to Him? Is your, are your affections and love caught up in Him? Or is it in something else? Is it in the things of the world? And if you do love money, you're on a suicidal track. You're pursuing perdition. So, okay, the example of Judas. So how can we protect ourselves? Let me ask you that. How then can we protect ourselves from the love of money? How can we handle daily this dangerous substance of money? How can we handle it and live in this world which Jesus said don't love? How can we live in the midst of this corrupt world, handle this money? How can we do this and not be destroyed? How? And this is where the example of Mary falls into place. Example of Mary. We got to get our eyes on a greater treasure than money. We got to set our gaze on some treasure that's so glorious that you can love so much that money just fades in the background. You can just give it all up on Him. You don't even care anymore because you have this treasure. And that treasure is Christ. Mary had it. She saw it. She saw Christ Jesus. Judas would give Him up for 30 pieces of silver. He'd rather have a couple thousand bucks than Jesus. Mary says, I'll take the cost of this thing I got and pour it all out because I want Him. I love Him. I desire Him. And if you can get your eyes on this great treasure, you would be defended against the dangers of money. So let's go into Mary's example, okay? Verse 3 through 9, Mary's example. This is like the, the, the meat, the meat in the sandwich, so to speak. It's the meat right here, the meat in the sandwich. Mary's example. This is a beautiful snapshot of a disciple of Christ. Here it is. Beautiful snapshot. Look at verse 3. And being in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at the table, a woman came having an alabaster flask of very 
costly oil of spikenard. She broke the flask and poured it on his head. Jesus is sitting at the dinner table. He's just sitting there. He's at the dinner table. He's enjoying dinner. And this woman comes. John chapter 12, we know it's Mary. This woman comes. But first she goes and retrieves this very, very costly thing, this precious possession of hers. And she goes and she retrieves it. It's called an alabaster flask, a very costly fragrant oil. It says it's very costly, and it ain't playing. It's very costly. If you read the objection down in verse 5 that Judas let out, it says it might have been sold for more than 300 denarii. This is 300 denarii worth of fragrant oil. This is more than all of your essential oils that you, did you sell. <laughs> 300 denarii. There's a parable where Jesus told where a man was going and hiring workers for how much a day? One denarius. One a day. Average day's wage. Average worker's day wage. One denarius. 300 of those. You take in Sabbaths and times that you don't work. That's a year's wages that are in this bottle. It's a year's wages. 300 denarii. Average yearly salary. $35,000 poured out just like that in a moment on Christ. She didn't care. She didn't love money. She doesn't care about money. She loves Christ. She wants Jesus. He's all in all. And she pours it out on Him. <laughs> so good. The parallel passage in John 12 tells us that not only did she pour it on His head, but it said she anointed His feet. And after she anoints his feet, she gets, she bows down. Her hair's got to touch his feet. So she's bowed down with her head next to his feet and she's wiping his dirty feet, his real human feet, with her hair. She's using her, her hair like a rag to clean his dirty feet. She's bent down and she pours it all on. In a moment, a year's wage is just poured out, bend down before Jesus the Savior and just begin to wipe his feet with her hair. This happened another time earlier in Jesus' ministry. It happened. Luke chapter 7. It happened. And Jesus attributed that act in Luke chapter 7 to man she loves greatly. Look at her love. Tears streaming down her face, pouring the oil on, wiping her, the, his feet with her hair. And Jesus said she loved much. She loved much. And that's what this is. This is affections for Christ. Great Love and affection for Jesus. And Mary has it. And she deeply loves Christ. And she expresses it with this radical act of pouring out a year's salary of very costly fragrant oil. What does this mean? It means Jesus is her highest treasure. Jesus is her highest treasure above everything else. $40,000, $35,000, nothing to her. Doesn't matter. Christ is my highest treasure. She doesn't stop and think, ah, I wish I didn't have to make this big of a sacrifice. No, she didn't do that. She just pours it all out. Pours it all out on Him. She's saying this to Jesus. She's looking at Jesus saying, whom have I in heaven but you? 
There's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My heart and flesh, yeah, they might fail, but you're the strength of my heart. You're my portion forever. Psalm 73, 25. She's saying to Jesus, Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou mine inheritance, now and always. Thou and thou only, first in my heart. High King of heaven, my treasure thou art. It's you, Lord. She's saying to him, when I survey the wondrous cross and I think about what you just said, Jesus, that in two days is coming, you're going to die. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Lord of glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that'd be an offering far too small. Far too small. Love so amazing, love so divine, Jesus, demands my heart, my soul, my all, everything to you. Everything to you, Christ. She's living out the teachings of Jesus. She's living it out. Jesus said, whoever does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple, Luke 14, And she's laying it all down. Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and hid. And for joy over that treasure, she went and sold everything else and bought it. And she's living it out. She's living out joy over Him. Gladly, I pour it all out for you. You are my treasure and I sell it all for you. She's living out the teachings of Jesus. Jesus said in Mark 8.35, whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. And she's losing it all. My life doesn't matter. Don't care about my life. I got Christ. She's living it out. She's forsaken all with joy in her heart. She's happily losing her life because Christ is her treasure. He's sitting right there at the table. Think about it. She's there. She knows this. He's right there at the table. That's the one. The one worthy of supreme worship is at the table with me. The one worthy of all my praise and all my adoration. He's right there. I'm looking at Him. Look at Christ. He's right there. He's worthy of all my praise. John 1, right? The one that was the Word that was God that became flesh. He's right there. There He is. And Judas couldn't see, but she saw it. She saw it. She knew it. She loved Him. The Son of God. The one who... uh, There He is. The one who upholds all things by the Word of His power. He's sitting right there at the table. The one that's going to go to the cross. And He's going to be wounded for my sin. He's going to be crushed for my iniquity. And He's sitting right there. And Judas, you can't see it. You can't see it, Judas. You're blind. But, But I see it. I see how glorious He is. And I'm about to pour out. I'm about to pour all out. Every drop. How valuable and precious, how valuable and precious is Christ? What do you think? It's inexpressible, right? How precious is Jesus? It is inexpressible to talk about how precious Jesus is. Here's a better question. How valuable and precious is Christ to you? To you. How valuable is He to you? How precious is He to you? 
And as I said earlier, you can't just give me words. What do your affections say? Judas could have gave words, but what do your affections say? What do your actions say? What do your actions say? If the people looking in at her would have saw what went down, they'd have said, man, Christ is her highest treasure. Man, she loves Jesus. Look at, the, look at her. She loves Christ. And what if we got to gaze into your actions, into your life, and the way you spend your time? Is He your highest treasure? How precious is He to you? To you. So here's the woman, okay? Here she is. This is our example. This is what I've been talking about. This is what I'm saying is one of the greatest examples that you can look at. The greatest example. Look at He's putting it right there for us. In the shadow of the cross, this is the response. And we look at it, and we imitate it. We want to go after that. That's what we want to be. Not like Judas, but like Mary. In Mark 14, verse 4 and 5, look at what it says. But there were some who were indignant among themselves and said, why was this fragrant oil wasted? For it might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they criticized her sharply. There were some. Who were they? The disciples of Jesus. Go read Matthew 26 account. These are the disciples of Jesus. Led out by Judas. They joined forces with Him. Said, that's right. Wow, this was a waste that you just did this, Mary. It's a waste. It's a waste. And they're angry at her. Indignant, it says. This means nostrils are flaring at her. They rebuke her. Can you see her in that moment? I wonder. She's just poured it all out. She's just acting out of love in her soul for Christ. Poured it all out. And then she gets rebuked by these close followers of Christ. In that moment, what do you think she felt? Did her head drop? Did her countenance sink for a moment? And they called her actions a waste. That's a waste. What you just did is a waste. And they criticize her sharply, it says. They criticize her Sharply. You know this will happen, right? You go ahead. You step out. Radical zeal. Radical devotion to Christ. Radical sacrifice. Radical affections for Jesus. Pour it all out. Extravagant love. Lavish love on Christ. And I guarantee you there'll be those. The some here. There'll be some who'll think you're crazy. It may not even be atheists and agnostics. It might be those close to you that think you're crazy. This made me, this, when I read this, it made me think of David. Remember King David? It's in uh, 2 Samuel 6, King David. His affection stirred up for God and his wife's response to him. Remember that? 2 Samuel 6, David and his men, they're coming into Jerusalem. David and his men, think of it, coming into Jerusalem. And they're dancing before the Lord. And they're letting out loud shouts. And they're praising their God. And in verse 16 it says, Michael, Saul's daughter, his wife, looked through the window, saw King David leaping and whirling before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. Verse 20, she says to David, David finally comes around, she says to David, David, how glorious was the king of Israel today, uncovering himself today in the eyes of the maids and his servants as one of the base fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. What are you doing, David? What are you doing? It reminds me of these disciples. Verse 21, David tells her, it's before the Lord that I do these things and I'll be even more undignified than this. He says, I'm worshiping my king. That's what I'm doing. I love him. 
And there will always be people that come, especially in this culture. You live in a culture of lukewarmness toward Christ. You know that? Of moderate Christianity. Moderate Christianity is very well accepted. And the moment you begin to get red hot with burning passion for Jesus Christ, you can rest assured that there will be someone there to call you back into moderation. Come on back into lukewarmness. Don't listen. Don't listen to that. Press on, brother and sister, when you're red hot for Christ. I love it how in verse 6, Jesus comes to her defense. Jesus is about to come in. This is awesome. She's being criticized. Maybe her countenance dropped. Maybe she looks a little sad. But Christ Jesus is about to come to this lady's defense right now. Verse 6, He says, Let her alone. Let her alone, it says. This literally means, it literally means, get out of here. He's saying, hush your mouth. Let her alone. Hush your mouth. What you deem to be a waste, you just called it a waste. I'm about to set it up as a memorial all over the world. And you think it's a waste. Not a waste. Jesus goes on to say, she has done a good work for me. For me, she's done this good work. That's a good work she did for me. For you have the poor with you always, and whenever you wish, you may do them good. But me, me, you don't have always. You don't always have me. The poor is always with you. Should you do them good? Absolutely. Do they? I do them good. I love them. I do them good. You should do them good too. But they're always with you. But I'm just here for just a little while longer. Me, it's about me. Jesus puts His stamp on it. She's done a good work. Extreme, extravagant love for Christ. And Jesus places His stamp right on it. He said, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. My version says, she did a good work. The ESV said, it's a beautiful thing. You say waste. I say that's beautiful what I just saw her do. Beautiful. In the sight of Christ. He's telling His disciples, you don't know what you're talking about. That's what He's looking at His disciples. He said, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't get it. You got the poor with you always. You can always love the poor. And you should. But she did this for me. This is about me. This is about my value. This is about my worth. And you can't see it, but she sees it. She sees how valuable and worthy I am. She sees it, so she pours it all out. But you can't see it. You're, you're blind to it. Especially you, Judas, you're blind to it. You can't see. Her heart is right on and your hearts are wrong. He corrects His disciples. In verse 8, she has done what she could. She has come beforehand to anoint my body for burial. Now whether she knew she was doing that or not, I don't know. Maybe she knew I'm coming to anoint this body for burial. Maybe she just did it and Jesus declared it so. That was for my burial. I'm about to die in just a few days. And when I die, this is going to be the anointing oil laid on me for my burial. Jesus just said, I want you to think about this, in verse 9, He says in verse 9, Assuredly I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, think about that, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, Jesus just said in Mark 13.10 that the gospel is going to preach, be preached to all nations and then the end will come. 
And now Jesus says, everywhere the gospel goes in the whole world, meaning what? All nations, every nation, tribe, and tongue, everywhere it goes, everywhere the gospel goes, what this woman has done will be commemorated. It'll be remembered. Look at it. It'll stand as a memorial to you. She's full of love for Jesus. She's full of love for Jesus. She expresses it with radical sacrifice to Jesus, laying it all down. The disciples begin to say, that's wasteful. Jesus calls it beautiful. He sets it up as a memorial to every nation, tribe, and tongue on this earth. And it's the prime example. It's the proper response in light of the cross to the way, the way we respond to the King who died. It's the way we respond. So in this passage... A clear line's drawn. You got Judas. You got Mary. And you're one of them. You're one of those. Judas or Mary. You're like, your life is like one of those. They are both, I want you to think about it. Here's a similarity they have. They are both driven They are both driven people. They are driven by heartfelt love and desire. Everybody is driven this way. Everybody. Nobody's cold in every place of their life. You've got places where your affections are poured out and you praise and you worship and all the emotions. You've got places in your life like that. Everybody's driven by this heartfelt love and desire. And both of them were Mary had a heartfelt love and desire for Jesus, for Jesus, while Judas had a heartfelt love and desire for money, stuff, the things of the world. Another similarity. They both, they both knew the worth of 300 denarii. They both knew the the value of a year's salary, a year's wages. They both knew how much that was. They were neither one of them were ignorant to that. But only, only Mary could see the great glory of Christ and therefore pour it all out. Only she could see that. Judas couldn't see it. So he sells Jesus for far less. He chased, couldn't see the glory of Jesus. So he chased lesser pleasures to his own destruction. Who are you like? Who are you like? Judas, Mary, where are your affections? Where's your love? Where's your devotion? Who, who are you like? Jesus calls it beautiful. Think about it. He said beautiful. This is a beautiful thing. When the affections of Jesus' people meet up with the glory and worth of Jesus and they come together and they meet, he says, that's beautiful. But when they don't, and you got the worth of Jesus, the glory of Jesus, and the, and the love, the affections, the devotion don't meet, but instead they go down another path to something else. It's a suicidal path. It leads to destruction. Don't go there. Who are you like? Life and death is put before you. Life and death. I want you to think with me. Last thing I want to say. Think with me like a shepherd, okay? You got shepherds? You think that way? I don't mean like an appointed pastor. I don't mean that. I just mean you got a shepherd's heart. You look out at your brothers and sisters, you know, ones that are here, ones that aren't here. 
Grace Community Church, what we call Grace Community Church, whom you pray for, whom you love, whom you call up and ask to go to lunch somewhere so I can catch up and dig into your life. These people that you love, that you're on mission together with, and think with me for a minute, like a shepherd. Think about it. Grace Community Church. Brothers and sisters all across the room, set free from the love of money. Set free from it. Don't care. Don't need it. Don't love it. And Grace Community Church, think like a shepherd with me. Grace Community Church, intense affections for Jesus Christ, abounding in radical, extravagant, lavish acts of love all over the place. Grace Community Church. Let's pray that in. God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for these two examples, God, I pray. God, I... All of us here, we, we don't want to be Judas-like. We don't want to be like Him. We don't want to have our affections on the things of this world. God, we don't want to move toward that destructive path. So help us, God, please. Open our eyes. God, I pray that there will be people here. Some I know and love dearly and some I don't know. And I pray, God, You would awaken their souls to Your glory. Awaken their souls to how amazing, glorious, magnificent that you are. And I pray it kill all desires for the love of money. God, make us a people with intense affections for you. Help us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.